if you are falling out of an airplane at 100 miles an hour, but there's a parachute strapped to your back, what can you do to save your life? If your throat is closing up due to anaphylactic shock, but your hand is gripping an epinephrine injector, what can you do to save your life? If you're riding in the front car of an out-of-control subway train, sounds like a Jerry Bruckheimer movie, right? But sitting next to an emergency brake cord, what can you do to save your life? The answer to all of those hypothetical scenarios seems, they seem pretty obvious, don't they? But how about this one? One more for you. If you are a spiritually dead, spiritually hostile, spiritually wayward human being who is hurtling down a path that only leads to the just wrath of a holy God, what can you do to save your life? For many people, the answer to that, less, that last question is less clear. And sadly, it can even be unclear to people who identify as Christians. But, but as scary as those first three scenarios sounds, Sound and, and I know none of us would want to be in those positions. As scary as those three scenarios sound, that final scenario definitely sounds like a worst-case scenario, doesn't it? Why? Because that scenario describes not simply the loss of one's physical life. It describes loss and suffering in terms of spiritual existence in terms of eternal existence. You see, the stakes are far higher in that last scenario. Now, if this is the case, it is absolutely critical we find an answer to that last question. What can you do to save your life? Let's look for that answer together by looking Together at Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. That's where we are this morning, where we will be setting up our tent, camping out. Let me read, beginning in verse 34. This is verses 34 through 36. The gospel writer tells us, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he, Jesus, said to them, If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now, Mark chapter 8 was, of course, one of the chapters that we read through in this past week in our Bible reading plan that's on the back counter there. Uh, I pray that that reading, I think it was Mark, what, 5 through 10 was, a, or 6 through 10 was an extreme blessing to you. But Mark 8 was one of those chapters. 
If you are not using that calendar, you can grab a copy in the back. But um, if you are using that calendar, let me just throw as a little side note in there. I want to I challenge you continually to look for ways to encourage others with what you're reading. Maybe that's sharing a verse. Uh, Tim Patchen could do a master class, right, on sharing scripture via text and email and social media. <laughs> so he's a, he's a great trendsetter for us and an example of what we can do when, we, when what we're reading, maybe God brings to mind someone who might need to hear that word to encourage one another, uh, like we talked about last week, uh, simple reminders. Jesus is powerful, isn't he? Jesus is powerful. So let's keep doing that with one another. But if you have been reading with us, then you may, may remember something about the context here of Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 36, and how helpful that context is in making sense of what Jesus has just spoken, what he's just revealed to us in this text. So before we break down the how-to of verse 34, I think it is absolutely essential that we establish the fact that Jesus is talking here about how you can save your life. Do you see that? He is talking about how you can save your life. He is not talking about an extra step in the Christian life. He is not talking about going deeper. He is not talking about spiritual extracurricular. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about rescue, deliverance, redemption, salvation. We have to be absolutely clear about that. This is abundantly clear, I believe, from the text. Look at verses 35 and 36. Verse 35, what is Jesus doing? He's clarifying what is, in fact, the correct way to save your life. Now, this can be a bit confusing at first, but what Jesus is doing is he wants his listeners to understand that their ideas about saving their lives will only lead to ultimate loss. Their ideas about saving, how to save their lives, will only lead to ultimate loss. But counterintuitively, losing one's life now, losing one's life now will actually lead to ultimate salvation. So we've got some terms to define, don't we, as we're looking at this. Verse 36, look at how it adds to this idea. It just stresses the stakes, doesn't it? It stresses the stakes involved and the nature of this salvation. Jesus is telling his listeners and God is telling us this morning that we're talking about nothing short of either preserving or forfeiting your soul. Like I said, the stakes cannot be higher. As I said, it's abundantly clear. Jesus is talking about how to save your life here. So when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, yes, he's talking about discipleship. We get confused in the church about discipleship, don't we? We often talk about discipleship as if it's a relationship between two people in the church. That is not how the Bible uses the term. The Bible uses the term that there is only one person that we are disciples of, and that is Jesus Christ. Therefore, discipleship 
is the church is a brother or sister, maybe an older brother, maybe an older sister, helping you in your discipleship relationship with Jesus. It's helping you as a student of Jesus, as an apprentice of Jesus, as one who follows him. Therefore, this is about discipleship, absolutely. But remember, Jesus is talking about discipleship to the Son of Man, to the Son of God, to the King of Kings, as we sang before, to the Lord of Lords. This is not discipleship to any other rabbi. And there were plenty of rabbis roaming around or in Jerusalem who had disciples. Even John the Baptist had disciples. Of course, John wanted them to know that that was a temporary position, right? He wasn't hiring full-time or forever. It was a temp job until the Lamb of God would come, the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so discipleship to Jesus is radically different. It's much bigger. It's much greater. The stakes involved are so much higher because he is the son of man, the son of God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Therefore, following him, coming after him is not a social step or a vocational step or an educational step or a political step. It's ultimately a spiritual decision, an eternal decision. There is nothing more important that's not, and that's not exaggeration. That's not hyperbole. There is nothing more important when it comes to our human lives. Paul would later describe this kingdom, this kingdom calling of Jesus with these words. He, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. That kingdom calling that calls us into fellowship with God. You either in this life exist in the domain of darkness or the kingdom of Christ. That's it. There's only two paths. There's only two ways according to what God has revealed. So the call to follow Jesus, if anyone would come after me, the call to follow Jesus is a call to new life in God's kingdom. This is how you save your life, friends. This is how you save your life. This is how you save your soul, according to Jesus. I just don't want us to miss how big this is, right? how important this is. If there are five key scriptures in all, five key passages in all of scripture, this is one of them. But verse 34 makes it clear there are three parts to this life saving response. Do you see that? Verse 34. What does Jesus say? You must, number one, deny yourself. Number two, you must take up your cross. And number three, you must follow Jesus. Let's take a few minutes to look at each of those ideas. Let's break them down together. First, what does it mean to deny yourself? Deny yourself. That sounds like, um, it sounds like a quite, that sounds, that statement sounds quite heretical in terms of the modern ethos. 
the cultural creeds that are being proclaimed so loudly. They never tell you to deny yourself. They always tell you to affirm yourself. You see, our, our society struggles with, with value, self-worth. Not self-esteem, self-worth. Our society struggles with it badly, deeply. Broken families, traumatic situations. We're cranking out in this society people who feel worthless, who feel beaten down by life who feel like there's no hope, who feel like they could never belong or be loved by anyone. And when you feel like that, it often leads you or tempts you to extremes, especially us as human beings. So we deeply, deeply struggle with this. So when I say deny yourself, it does sound heretical, in terms of the modern creed, the secular creed. What does it mean though? Well, thankfully the context here helps us answer that question. I want you to consider with me the exchange between Jesus and his disciples, Jesus and Peter. It's actually back up a few verses to verse 31. Take a look at what it says there. Verse 31, And he, Jesus, began to teach them, that's the twelve, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and not only be rejected, but be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, crystal clear. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Wow. Tension. The other guys are like, awkward. What's going on here? Well, this helps us, doesn't it? Denying yourself. Please hear this. Denying yourself is not the opposite of self-worth. Denying yourself is the acknowledgement of and right response to self-deception. Let me say that again. Denying yourself is not the opposite of self-worth. It is the acknowledgement of and right response to self-deception. When Jesus teaches in verse 34 that you must first deny yourself, this is a direct response to Peter's opposition in verse 32. Do you see that? Peter, his ideas about the Messiah involved conquest, not rejection. Peter's ideas were about success, not suffering. What he heard Jesus describing in verse 31 sounded like defeat, not victory. And Peter would have none of it. He thought Jesus just needed a good pep pep talk, right? Get him back on track. Get his focus back to where it needed to be. His ideas, as we see here, his ideas were not the things of God. They were the things of man. Peter was deceived, like us. 
Like all of us, Peter was deceived. His mind was set not on the things of God, verse 33, but on the things of man. His ideas were fleshly. His ideas made him a pawn of Satan rather than a servant of God. Again, we don't want to miss how serious this is. And this is true, of course, of all of us. Peter's not the exception here. Peter's not just the wild card. Peter's me. Peter's you. But no one can serve both Jesus and the things of man. Scriptures are clear. We cannot serve both Jesus and the things of man because Peter would not deny himself in the way that Jesus would go on to describe what happened. He later denied Christ himself. This is why Jesus instructs us first to deny ourselves. If anyone would come after me, he must, she must deny himself, herself. To deny ourselves is to deny this belief that we know better. It's to deny this belief. It's to give up on this outlook to daily distance ourselves from that deception. It means confessing, oh God, there is not one thing that I know better than you. And so I, oh God, reject the me that believes that lie. I deny that me. Make sense? We deny that me. Like Peter, we deny that deceived self. When we consider other passages in the scriptures, it's clear that this denial of self is just one aspect of what the Bible calls repentance. I want you to see those two go together. Uh, I say one aspect because I think biblically we would add the idea of remorse into that description of repentance. That doesn't come out as strongly here, but denial of yourself is clearly part of this idea preached throughout the word about repentance. So keep that in mind if you would and let's think more about the second idea. How can you save your life according to Jesus? By denying yourself and taking up your cross. Now remember, this is well before Jesus' own death. He's just talked about himself going to die for the very first time in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He's just mentioned that. Very first time. In their mind, it has no connection to the cross. Right? They don't know how he's going to die. He's not made that clear to them. So we cannot just go forward in time and say, this has to do with Jesus dying on the cross. It does not. Not in that way. So, if this is before Jesus' own death... What would his listeners have understood when he called them to take up their crosses? When he said, take up your cross, what is going through their mind? I believe if we took a time machine back 2,000 years, we would discover that it was quite common in, sadly, it was quite common for Jews in ancient Palestine, Roman Palestine, to witness the Roman practice of crucifixion. If you don't already know, then you should know that Jesus was not the only crucified person in history. I think most of you know that. 
there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who were crucified. Tens of thousands of people. Even in one setting at the uprising of Spartacus, so, so beautifully preserved by Hollywood for us, you know, with Kurt Douglas with that chin and everything, right? Even at that point, the uprising of Spartacus, I believe 2,000 men were crucified at one time. So Jesus was not the only person in history who was crucified. Jews living under Roman occupation in Palestine would have witnessed people being led into crucifixion. A condemned man, as, as would later happen with Jesus, a condemned man would usually have to carry the crossbeam of his cross through the streets on his way to be crucified. This was part of the humiliation and suffering involved with this kind of death sentence. And so when Jesus talks about taking up one's cross, I think the crowds would have understood that picture. They would have understood this as a willingness to endure humiliation and suffering. If denying myself is a decision to no longer identify with the me ruled by the things of man, then taking up my cross is the other side of that coin. It's a decision to identify with the things of God in a world ruled by the things of man. And when you do that, there will always be a price to pay. There will be a cost. There is suffering involved when you do that. As Peter demonstrated when Jesus began to talk about suffering in verse 31, he was not interested in that kind of suffering, was he? And when the words of verse 31 began to come true later in this gospel, Peter continued to run away. As Jesus faced a literal cross, Peter would not take up his own cross, would he? He would not do it. And so at the end of Mark 14, he denied Jesus, not once, but three times. So if denying oneself is an aspect of repentance, then taking up one's cross is an aspect of saving faith. It's a way of talking about saving faith. You can hear this same faith in Paul when he writes this in Romans chapter 8 verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's a faith appraisal, isn't it? That's a faith estimation, isn't it? That you say, you know what? This momentary light affliction, it's what it is. And I'm suffering badly and I'm suffering deeply. It does not compare for what God has in store. It does not compare with the comfort and blessing that I will one day experience. You see, that's a faith perspective. Better still than Paul, you can see this tension in verses 36 through 38 of Mark 8. Look at your, your Bibles. Verse 36, for what is it profit of man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is, here's the key word, ashamed. Whoever is ashamed 
of me, says Jesus, and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Remember we talked about a world ruled by the things of man? Here's some more descriptive terms. An adulterous and sinful generation. Whoever is ashamed of me in this generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, we cry. Come, Lord Jesus. Are you seeking earthly riches and ease, comfort right now? even if that means losing your soul forever? Or will you embrace rejection and hardship now, knowing that it will lead to everlasting blessing and comfort? Isn't this what Jesus is talking about with them? Right? Isn't he describing that contrast there? The man or woman who is ashamed of Jesus Christ will never take up their cross. Therefore, they cannot and they will not save their lives. But there's one more idea here. Verse 34. Take a look. Verse 34. A right appraisal of the things of man followed by a right appraisal of the things of God Right? Things of man, things of God. There's a cost involved when you live for the things of God in a world ruled by the things of man. Things of man, things of God, right appraisal must lead to a right appraisal of Jesus himself. Without this final piece, it doesn't work. Everything falls apart. It does not work. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Follow me. Now, when Jesus says, follow me, is he talking about actually walking down a path of Christ-likeness? Yes, he absolutely is talking about that. But that would be the outward overflow of the inward perspective that I believe Jesus is emphasizing here. What do I mean by that? I mean that whenever Jesus says, follow me to anyone, he is issuing a call to faith. A faith that acknowledges he is Lord and thus should be followed and should be followed before anyone or anything else in this world. Make sense? Whenever Jesus says, follow me, he's issuing a call to faith, faith to believe that he is in fact Lord. And so we look to him for life and in life. For life and in life, we look to Jesus Christ. That is both saving submission and daily submission to him. Amen? Saving submission and daily submission. The earliest, earliest Christian creed or confession that ever existed was just two words in Greek, three in English. Jesu kurie. Jesu kurie. Jesus is Lord. 
Don't take my word for it. You can find it all throughout the New Testament. Paul mentions it several different times. Romans chapter 10. Right? How is one to be saved? If you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord. Right? And believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, a living, victorious Lord, you shall be saved. No one can say, of course, Jesus is Lord except Rome, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, but by the Spirit of God. No one can say Jesus is Lord. You see, it was already a confession, simple confession, two words, but it encapsulates everything, everything in those two words. So again, please notice the different ways Jesus is expressing the same ideas in these verses, our main verses, chapter 8, verses 34 through 36. To deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me in verse 34 are the same thing as losing one's life for my sake and the gospels in verse 35. Same thing, just putting in a different way. It means, what does it mean? It means rejecting the reign of self and embracing Jesus as Lord no matter the cost. So if you want a quick summary statement, and this is it, I'll say it again. Write it down. Burn it in your brain, your database up here, right? What does all of this mean? What's everything we've been kind of bringing together in terms of how to save your life? It means this, that you reject the reign of self and embrace Jesus as Lord, no matter the cost. Brothers and sisters, friends, that is the heart of saving faith. That is the heart of saving faith. Now, As we've been reading through Mark's gospel, God has been showing us so much about the identity of Jesus, hasn't he? As we've been reading together through these opening chapters up to chapter 10 so far. And in some sense, it's all led up to this question. The question that we find only a few verses before our main passage. So what Jesus has provided for us in verse 34 is the right response to the right answer to the pivotal question posed in verse 29. Take a look at verse 29. Get that nose in that Bible (laughs) to that screen. Verse 29. Look at the question. Who do you say that I am? What did I just say? I said that verse 34 is the right response to the right answer to the pivotal question posed there. Who do you say that I am? Peter had the right answer in verse 29. But he did not understand the right response. He did not. It's abundantly clear here. God's question for you this morning is, do you? Do you? Yeah, I understand. You might know the right answer, like Peter in verse 29. But do you know the right response? You need both of those things. Right? There is not a pop quiz when you arrive at the gates of heaven. (laughs) It's not a pop quiz. It's not going to be five questions. And at the... 
Council of Chalcedon in 431, what was the fifth word of the sixth line? It's not going to be like that, right? It's not going to be like that. There is a right response that expresses saving faith, that gives evidence of genuine saving faith, and that is what God is describing for us this morning. Sadly, there have been and there are many churches today that have separated the deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me of Mark 8.34. They have separated that from the repent and believe of Mark 1.15. They have separated those things unjustified. Why have they done it? They've done it so they can notch the belt. They've done it so they can mark the tabs. They've done it so they can save. So many people got saved today, right? This many people came forward today. This many people prayed today. This many people raised their hand today and they can pat themselves on the back and feel like they are successful in Christian ministry doing evangelism. But in fact, what they have done is they they have undercut the gospel of Jesus. And they have turned people away and sent them into this world with a false belief that they know anything about what Jesus has said of how to save one's life. You can tell I'm getting a little worked up, can't you? And you know why I do? Because this is critical, brothers and sisters. This is everything. This is everything. And when they separate these things out, they twist repentance and faith into abstractions that are not biblical. Some today seem to think Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him pray and ask me into his heart. What? That's not what Jesus said. Some today seem to say, They seem to replace deny yourself with accept yourself. Still others seem to be saying, take up your crown instead of take up your cross. We're hearing these echoes. We're hearing these proclamations from parts of the church. And they rub up against the words of Jesus himself. Brothers and sisters, this is not a peripheral debate among leaders and academics. We need to get this right, don't we? We need to get this right. Remember what we're talking about. We're talking about how to save your life. We're talking about the message we are called to announce that lives may be saved. This is the ministry with which we have been entrusted by God himself. But the words of Jesus here also lay the groundwork for us, for you, actually living the Christian life every day. As Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. As you received Him, so walk in Him. Believer, do you hear God speaking these words to your heart this morning. 
Do you hear him speaking these words to your heart? Do you hear him this morning saying to you personally, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me? Just just stop for a minute. Stop for a minute. Listen. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Do you hear him? As you hear him, as I speak those words, how is he stirring you today? How is he stirring you? Maybe he's reminding you of something big about Jesus, about your salvation. Or maybe in love he's pressing on you. Pressing in on one specific area of your life. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Or maybe you are hearing this message clearly for the very first time. And it's your deepest desire, as you've heard this message, it's your deepest desire to save your life by following Jesus. You really do want to save your life this morning. If so, then it's time right now. It's time to reject that things of man mindset. It's time to let go. That's what it means to lose your life, to let go of that old life, to deny yourself. It's time to take up your cross and follow him. Talk to him now. He's listening. The God who created the world wants to recreate you today, this morning. When Jesus talks here about how you can save your life, it's important to keep in mind the gospel mentioned in verse 35. You see that word? That gospel. Again, pre-cross of Jesus. So when we see gospel here, which literally euangelion in Greek, good news. It's the same proclamation that Mark chapter 1 tells us that Jesus was out right out of the gate declaring. He was proclaiming the gospel of God throughout Galilee saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. You see, this gospel of the kingdom that Jesus was talking about there in chapter 1 and here in chapter 8 This gospel, we know from the rest of Mark and the rest of the New Testament that the fullness of this gospel of the kingdom was only realized when the king took up his cross. Jesus took up his cross. A literal cross. And so this gospel of the kingdom is being fulfilled as Jesus takes up this cross. Because entrance into this kingdom has a price. Everything that had come before and prefigured was now arriving at this point where it said that forgiveness, atonement, like the lambs and the bulls of the Old Testament was was picturing as accomplishing 
that all of it had one goal in mind, not so you could go on your merry way and feel good about yourself. Oh, I'm forgiven by Jesus. Woo! I feel like I can go do whatever I want to do now. No, the whole reason atonement was made, the whole reason God dwelt among them right there in the circle of the Israelites as they camped out, why on Zion, the holy mountain, in that temple, God was there making atonement for the people. It was for one reason, that they might have fellowship with him. That the barrier might be removed. That man, woman, and God would be reconciled to each other once again. Therefore, when Christ took up his cross, the king was doing a priestly work. Jesus Christ, king, priest, and prophet, right? He was doing a priestly work in taking up that cross. And because he did for our sake and then rose again from the dead, salvation, rescue, deliverance, redemption, these are possible It's possible. We need to be clear that we clarify what we're talking about this morning, especially given the sermon title. Ultimately, you cannot save your life. You just can't. You never will be able to. Ultimately, you can't save your life. Neither can I, but Jesus can. Forever, fully, finally, Forever, Jesus can. And so what, does, what becomes the, the central issue? The central issue is there is a right response in light of that right answer. A right response. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Amen? Amen. Let's ask God for the ears that each of us would truly hear this word, this call of Christ, and that we would hear it every single day. Would you pray with me?